Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Health Disparities Podcast, in which we are going to discuss equitable distribution of COVID-19 vaccines to underserved populations in several uh, locations and the foundational policies that have made that possible. My name is Sharon LaShore Roy, and I'm here in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm a member of the Movement is Life Steering Committee, but my day job is that I work for Florida Blue on health-related communications, and I manage our strategic enterprise um, social media strategy. I've spent quite a bit of time doing the digital storyteller, so I love this aspect, and I think that we're going to have a great conversation today. It's my pleasure to welcome two guests who are going to share with us insights about equitable distribution of vaccines from two different locations. And I'm also going to talk a little bit about what's been happening in the state of Florida with a large insurance company in helping to give out these vaccines. Our special guest is from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Coletta Barrett is the vice president of mission at Our Lady of the Lake Regional Medical Center. And she is also chair of the board for the Baton Rouge Mayor's Healthy City Initiative. Welcome, Coletta, to the Health Disparities Podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Sharon. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. And secondly, my fellow Movement is Life Steering Group member, Dr. Carla Harwell is an internist affiliated with University Hospital's Cleveland Medical Center. And like Coletta and myself, she has strong ties with local faith communities. So welcome, Dr. Harwell. Hi, thank you. It's great to have you both here to discuss this important subject, especially in this day and age. We can't get a more imperative of a subject to talk about. So Coletta, let's start with a little bit about your health system which is called the Franciscan Missionaries of Our Lady, sometimes abbreviated to F-M-O-L-H-S, of which Our Lady of the Lake Medical Center is a member. Uh, Yes, the Franciscan Missionaries of Our Lady um, congregation or who started our ministry um, oh, 110 years ago now. And so we are a, um, the only health system in Louisiana that was founded by women. Um, our health system is actually located in Louisiana and now Mississippi. St. Dominic's Hospital, which is a Dominican institution, okay. joined our ministry a little over a year ago now. So we have five hospitals located in Louisiana and in Mississippi. We have a freestanding children's hospital, a critical access hospital. Um, The institution that I hail from is 840 beds, and we are the uh, regional trauma center. Um, As a Catholic institution, talking about our mission, you know, we're committed to, um, you know, defending the human dignity, attending to the whole person, caring for poor and vulnerable persons, promoting the common good, um, acting on behalf of justice, stewarding resources. And so that's just part of our Catholic identity. More specifically, our mission and ministry calls us to be a healing and spiritual presence to our 
team members and to the communities that we serve. From that perspective, um, I wear the outward facing hat of community engagement and collaboration. And I want to kind of, you know, talk about something. I used to work for Florida Hospital, which is the largest Advent health system. And I love how you talked about the healing and spiritual, because that was one of the aspects. People love that. Like they chose Florida Hospital because of that aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you talk about the the healing and the spiritual, I think it does go hand in hand. You need a little bit of that to make sure. And, it, and you feel better. Even some people that may approach religion in a different level still felt better. And data showed us that being in a hospital that was faith-based was um, was a connecting force. So right. interesting. I love how you said that. So thank you. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you went about setting up the vaccine distribution? What did you want um, to add about the capacity of the state-led mass vaccination efforts. I you know, also add a little bit about what we've been doing with our face-based communities at Florida Blue um, to help get that out. And then how did you target um, these different communities? Well, in the early days, um, you know, vaccine was not necessarily uh, very readily available. And so there were prioritized Um, groups of people who um, could have access to the vaccine. Our CEO, Scott Wester, is truly one of those um, servant leaders. Um, He picked up the phone and called and said, our numbers for um, diversity in uh, vaccine uptake in the state are really not good at all. We need to figure Mm -hmm. out how we're going to get into communities of color. And I said, you know, that's fine, but broken promises and not making sure that we are fulfilling the promises that we make, um, we're not going to go there. And he said, okay, I'm making the commitment that we're going to have 200 vaccines a week that are specifically targeted for our congregational outreach program. And so that was back in mid-January. This was early on in the vaccine distribution. And so going to our um, churches, I call them churches of color, um, you know, our brown and and yellow populations, um, we went to congregational gatherings, we went to churches, we went to masses, to services, and shared with them personal experiences of uh, receiving the vaccine and inviting them to have a reservation for a vaccine if they gave us their name, their telephone number, and their date of birth. Um, And we made the commitment that 200 um, registrants each week would receive their vaccine. Um, we we started out with 150 something. We got up to 180 something. But in the early days, when we were still very limited with vaccines, um, we never went above our 200. And so it was a commitment that we were able to keep um, to call people, get them registered. It, it was interesting because we had to talk about culture, and during service, tell them answer your phone. You give me your phone number. Our call center is going to call you to give you your date and your time. You got to answer your phone. And we just had fun with that because it was like, I'm not, I don't know who that is. I'm not answering the call. So, um, you know, we, we did lots of different things with technology uh, over time. Um, when we were able to look at um, vaccine distribution and we had a vaccine that would be available to us, that is when we added a different prong in our congregation outreach. And we actually went into congregations 
partnered with them in a true co- collaboration model where we had shared ownership, shared power, and shared commitment. And so our partners owned the front end of that, reaching out, recruiting people from their congregation and the community around them, getting them their registrations, their reservations, um, and however they wanted to do that and manage the inflow into the vaccine clinic. Our commitment was we would bring vaccine, um, clinical staff to do that. We would make the second appointment. We, we, you know, we did the back of the house work and they did the front of the house work. And that shared collaboration, true stakeholder um, collaboration, sometimes is a little uncomfortable for some people who are like, well, no, no, how do you know they're getting the name? How do you know this is? And it's like, you know, we're very clear up front. This is theirs to do. We are doing what is ours to do. Let them do theirs. And um, that, that, that has been a successful model for us as well um, to go into um, high, um, high zip code need areas. We use community need index. We also use vulnerable zip, vulnerable census track numbers. So using data to drive where we go and who we collaborate with. Being a Catholic institution, we have a long standing uh, tradition and um, uh, trust with um, congregations. And so knowing that we could um, break through some of the trust issues by working with pastors, working with the congregational leadership, we were able to make some inroads early on. It's so interesting that you talked about a shared commitment. It seems like that the shared commitment and the trust that some people have a, um, I guess, with even this, the underserved community and with vaccines, they trust certain people um, more so than if, and, you know, a bigger person is saying, you know, somebody or a brand or, you know, they trust their priest. They're going to trust their pastor. They also are going to trust their family doctor which is a great time to bring in Dr. Carla to tell us a little bit about what's happening in Cleveland and your health system and going into the underserved communities. I'm really proud to say that our governor, Mike DeWine, I think did a great job with the state of Ohio when the whole COVID pandemic hit. He immediately responded knowing that um, there was a disproportionate number of people of color being impacted by COVID. So much so that he formed a COVID-19 minority health strike force, which was comprised of community leaders, physicians, scientists, so that we could sort of get ahead of this whole thing from the start. And so I was very proud of the fact that our governor really recognized early on that um, people of color were more vulnerable to contracting COVID and having worse outcomes. Um, As an offshoot of that, our governor, the state of Ohio Minority Health Strike Force, also had a campaign called More Than a Mask. Mm -hmm. And that was specific messaging and resources for people of color to help prevent the spread of COVID. So fast forward, moving forward, when it comes to the vaccine, once again, I think here, not only in Ohio, but specifically here in Cleveland, Um, we've done, I think, a pretty good job of making sure that we have identified individuals that lives in these vulnerable zip codes. We, too, have partnered with um, churches 
and um, to, you know, because the, the church, especially in the black community, is seen as a trusted voice. Historically, it's been seen that way, and that's still true now. And we actually had a group of pastors here in Cleveland sort of form a coalition where they all came together and it, it was a it was a newspaper um, media spread. Um, they, they were on the radio, they were on TV talking about the importance of people of color getting the vaccine. They went on TV and recorded themselves on, on the news getting the vaccine. <laughs> That's pretty when, when, when their turn, you know, when their turn came up and they were eligible. You know, they 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 practice what they preach. You know, they're telling people, you know, and endorsing getting the vaccine, and they actually themselves got the vaccine, and you know, allow cameras to to show them doing that. So we have had here in Cleveland. I know my hospital system. We've held town halls to address the mistrust the African American community has, and the Latino community as well. Some mistrust of people of color in general. Some mistrust of the system when it comes to getting the vaccine. We've partnered with, of course, churches and community centers that I always already talked about um, in terms of trying to get these vulnerable individuals to feel that they have a trusted voice that they can come to and that they can get accurate information. You know, I think one of the big things is, you know, social media you know, is can be a curse and it can also be, <laughs> be a blessing. Right. And um, currently here in Cleveland, we have a big vaccination site set up at something called our Woolstein Convention Center. And while it's located downtown and that isn't the area where a lot of these vulnerable patients or individuals have easy access to the Woolstein Center. It is on a bus line, Mm -hmm. but there are mechanisms in place where um, bus passes are being given to individuals so that they can get there. Um, There's coupons or certificates to use um, things like Uber and Lyft to get there. Um, Community centers are using, um, you know, buses and vans and transportation to get individuals to this centralized location. Mm-hmm. And so that has helped tremendously with getting um, a lot of our uh, people of color and people that are more in these vulnerable zip codes access to this mass vaccination site. I loved how you talked about partnering with faith-based organizations and the pastors here You know, in Florida. We did the same thing at you know, Florida Blue, yes, the insurance company, do we want, we want to get people vaccinated. So we literally had a faith-based initiative where we did webinars. It looks like education is key here, where you're helping to break down the myths, where we had key people do videos. And we started as early as Martin Luther King Day, <laughs> during Martin Luther King breakfast in one of our largest cities. We had doctors, we had pastors, we had the head of the, everybody was talking about, I'm going to get my vaccine when it's, when I'm, when I'm ready. And that's um, exactly when we started our campaign. Cause that was, King Day. Yep. that was the time to kind of start. Yes. So I really love that collaborative effort. I know Coletta, you spoke earlier about how your strategy exemplified cultural humility and competency. 
for example, the real talk sessions. We literally are talking about this now, you know, online and on the phone. I love how you said, oh, we're calling you. We're calling you. It's like you are connecting with people, you know, providing an opportunity to discuss vaccine hesitancy, what we were just chatting about, you know, and how, you know, how do we reassure them? So what do you see as examples of cultural humility? First of all, we're, we're, just like uh, most organizations, we're pretty data driven. We want to make sure that we are, um, you know, good stewards of resources. And so early on, um, the Healthcare Advisory Board had a publication that, um, and it was t- titled, Why So Many uh, Black Patients Distrust COVID 19 Vaccines and How Do You Go About Rebuilding Trust? And so it was like, sent that to everywhere that that we had it. And it was like, y'all need to read this because this is real. So when we went to congregations, first of all, there was always a partner with me who didn't look like me. While we may talk about, here's what we're doing, here's how you can get your vaccine. um, I had a partner with me from the congregation um, or um, from our mission outreach component part and talking about our personal experiences and talking and and putting, putting, we talked about the elephant in the room, the mistrust around healthcare, the mistrust around research. And, you know, nothing that we were going to say is going to address that. But here's what we do know and want you to be aware of. And so, you know, talking about Dr. Kizzy Corbett, who is an African-American researcher who was part of the Moderna team, who was part of the research. It's like, hey, you know, um, you know, maybe only 10 percent of the people who were in the research study represent the African-American population. But that's 10 percent of the of, of the population. So we. We really wanted to make sure that we, first of all, validated that there are concerns and it's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Secondly, you know, what we were doing to try and build, you know, um, trust and making sure that we fulfilled the commitments that we made. And and in those, you know, in the African-American churches, the the pastors themselves, like you like you said, you know, uh, Dr. Harwell was, you know, I forgot my vaccine. I'm still doing fine. Um, you know, those types of, of, of efforts and initiatives were really, really very important. Now, with our undocumented congregations, that was a little bit different. We also partnered. We went actually to. Um, the community-based organization that's in that is in the disinvested areas of Hispanic as well as African Americans called the Guardier Initiative, and they're they've been involved in looking at education and how do you do economic development. And we went to the Guardier Initiative and said, "We need your help. We want to come and be a part of the solution of how we bring vaccine." to this community, but we need your help. And they connected us with the Hispanic church, one of the Hispanic churches that said, we'll do it, and uh, worked with them to set up vaccines at nighttime. Because what they said was, our people are working all during the daytime. If you want to give vaccines, you need to come at nighttime. So we did five at night to nine at night. And um, true collaboration with um you know, with the church, they populated the spreadsheet, they gave the names. And 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 what we shared was that if you're uncomfortable with your address because you're afraid of uh, being undocumented, 
you're at, give us the church address. So we use the church address for a lot of people, people who were uncomfortable with giving you your giving you their telephone number. We put XXX dot XXX because that's what was required in the Epic system to do the reservation. You know, the, the cultural competency component part, our registration system with three and four names, we had them inverted last name was first name. And so our first clinic was, was a learning curve. And then by our second clinic, we were, we were really very, very good at that. Making sure that we had interpreters there because they're not making medical decisions. We had that typed out and answered yes or no, but um, the more than anything, it was just to have the conversation and, and what are they asking and being able to interpret that. So with undocumented persons, it was extremely important to us that we let them know that they could come to us without a piece of paper. If you tell me your name is, that's what I'm putting in the system. If you tell me what your birth date is, that's what I'm putting in the system, which then went to the state, you know, vaccine data bank. Um, but, but we, it was important for us. And so in church that, that at, at services that first Sunday, you know, having the pastor interpret for me, letting people know I am not from ICE. I am not from a state agency. I'm from that Catholic hospital down the street. And the church tells me here's where I need to be. And here's what I need to be doing. And, um, and we had great receptivity, both clinics um, at nighttime in the Hispanic community were phenomenal. And, um, you know, their comment was, when you're going to come back a third time? It's like, well, I'm not sure we're going to come back a third time. time but the, maybe for that booster. But I think one of the things that you said that striking a curve, I mean, as we just is about the trust mm-hmm. and partnering with people that whom already have that trust. I know Dr. Harwell in Cleveland you know, how are, how are you tackling undocumented and talking to the people that have that hesitancy about getting the vaccine? Our governor made it, it quite clear that if they were one of the thousands of undocumented immigrants, you know, that, that we do have here, that they are welcome to get the vaccine. So the Woolstein Center that I mentioned earlier in downtown Cleveland, that's our federal mass vaccination clinic, okay? And U.S. immigration and customs um, enforcement agents are not there. ICE is not there. You know, on the news, we're telling people they're not there. The military is there. It's a military presence because this is our federal mass vaccination site. Um, But there's been a mass um, media campaign to assure mm-hmm. any undocumented residents in the state of Ohio, especially here up in Cleveland at, at this site, that ICE is not there, that you know it's safe for you to come there, get the vaccine. We want you to get the vaccine. We want you to get the vaccine for yourself, for your family, for the, the nation's safety. And you know that may just sound like words. I mean, if you're that undocumented um, person and, you know, you've got that fear, clearly, you know, I'm sure there's some vaccine hesitancy associated with that. But I think we've done really good with a mass media campaign Mm -hmm. to hopefully make these individuals feel comfortable and feel safe and trust 
that that is not what is going on there. And, um, you know, I think that we've seen, we've seen Latino vaccination rates go up some here in Cleveland. It's not where it should be. And I'm sure that there is probably still some vaccine hesitancy associated with that, as well as, um, um, you know, a big population of some undocumented individuals who probably are just steer, still fearful of, you know, coming, you know, to that mass vaccination site and getting vaccinated. And I'm glad that you said that. I know in Florida, we have a lot of partners that are federally qualified health centers. And then Sanitas USA talking to our undocumented population, especially our Spanish speaking, um, and their language to assure them this is a safe place to come. We can help you. Um, you know, we've also are talking in Creole because there's a lot of Haitians and making sure that we are getting them to places that they feel comfortable with. So they don't, because when you go to a, when you, when you do go to a federal site, there's a lot of military. You, it's overwhelming for people, even like me. I was like, oh my gosh, did I do something wrong? You know, don't breathe, don't talk. So it's understandable that we need to, to address that. You know, I want to ask a question about, you know, we're talking about vaccine hesitancy. And do you think we're reaching a situation where is it a saturation? Are we are we done with the people that are willing to get the vaccine? You know, are we overcoming that hesitancy phase? How do we talk to the people that just refuse to get it? You know, all the people that are, yeah, I'm getting my vaccine. Yeah, you know, they're all excited. They're putting it on social, which we tell people, don't put it on social. Just put you got the vaccine, not your vaccine card. But, um, you know, so are we reaching a phase to where we have gotten to, to that part? So I think that we have to think about the difference between vaccine hesitancy and vaccine deliberation because the hesitancy i think can still be rooted in some of the fear you know mistrust um i'm kind of waiting to see how this stuff all pans out kind of thing. You know, when you're hesitant to do something, you're kind of pulling back the kind of the, the wait and see versus vaccine deliberation. I mean, you've given it some thought. You know, you've given it some thought. You may be educated about it. You have all the facts. And now you're just deliberating about it. So I think what I'm seeing a lot just in my practice and I'm and I'm really thankful and hopeful about this is I'm starting to see a shift from vaccine hesitancy to vaccine deliberation. People are thinking about that. They're giving it some serious thought now. Now, however, and you know, we can't not address the elephant in the room, which is the, you know, the pause on the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. So I'm afraid that we may take some steps backward in terms of vaccine hesitancy now because of that. But to me, the key here is still, it's all about education. It's all about individuals finding that trusted voice that they can go to, to get the right information. And I feel that 
getting the vaccine is a very emotional decision. It's an emotional decision. It was an emotional decision for me to get the vaccine. When I woke up the morning of getting my vaccine, I didn't wake up as Dr. Carla Harwell. I woke up as Carla Harwell, daughter of Ostrich and Willa Harwell, who are in their 80s. I woke up as that daughter who is the only caretaker for them in this city because my sister lives out of state. And I woke up saying, I want to get this vaccine, not even so much for myself, you know, or take my parents from me. And, and, and for me to stay whole and healthy because I'm the primary caretaker of them. So that was an emotional decision for me. It wasn't because I'm a healthcare provider and I was expected to get it. There's many healthcare providers out there who have chosen not to get the vaccine. So it's an emotional decision. And I think that we all have to acknowledge that when we're talking to individuals about getting the vaccine. So those who are still in that hesitancy phase, acknowledge that, acknowledge that it's an emotional decision and try to get them from the vaccine hesitancy phase to the vaccine deliberation phase. And then I, I think it can move that needle a little bit more. I really love how you said that. And Coletta, that's such a powerful thing. She said, I woke up as a daughter, like not even as a healthcare professional, that it was an emotional decision. You know, how do you feel with your collaborative efforts that you're doing? Has it been emotional for the people getting the vaccine? Absolutely. You know, some some has been rooted in fear, fear of making someone else sick or fear of being sick themselves. Some of what we've seen has been in, you know, elation, like Carla, the daughter I spoke of, you know, um, being excited about the fact that maybe we can go back to some semblance of normal um, by uh, receiving the vaccine and then getting fully vaccinated. I know that for for our family, our our oldest daughter and um, son-in-law and our three grandsons live right next door to us. And so the whole the whole issue of this was one family, you know, right? You, you you exist in your family pod. Well, still with kids going to school, you know, it was like, whoa, we need to be very, um, very aware, very cautious. And so it really was a um, uh, an emotional thing. Like you said, you know, I um, working in healthcare, I was not in the first phase of of vaccine. I was not until tier seven of our of our hierarchy in acute in, in our hospital because I'm an administrator. I don't do direct patient care. So it was weeks after people started getting vaccinated before my tier came up. And you know, it was just like, when's my time coming? You know, <laughs> when's my time coming? You know, I, I want to do this. Um, and then the same thing with my husband, who's just a little bit older than I am. And it's like, how do we get him vaccinated? Well, he ain't going to come for a while. And it's like, OK, well, put him on that angel dose list. You know, when you get an extra one, he works from home. Call him up. He'll come to the clinic, you know, um, because we really saw that as part of our work to be able to enjoy our family. I love how you said that. One of the things, and that's how I got on the list earlier. It was one of those angel lists. Hey, 
we've got extra vaccines. Can you come right now? So yes, like yep. my husband is a chef. He was literally taking a nap because he works double shifts on the weekend. I said, honey, we have a chance to go get a vaccine. He jumped out of bed so quick. I thought he was going to get whiplash. Like he's like, let's go. Like literally. And then we were driving. We went to the wrong place. Then we were freaking out because we were like, oh, my God, we went to the wrong place. But we got to the place in time because you had to get there within 30 minutes and then get in the line to wait. And hopefully, you know, and and everybody, a lot of people that I knew did the same thing, like get in the line. I'm going to get in the line because they might be able to do that. And we saw that even at Florida Blue, where we worked with Southeast Grocers, who's Winn-Dixie and Harvey's, mm-hmm. to do some on-site vaccination events where we're doing 200, we're going to be right here in your neighborhood, and people, like as soon as, and we tried to target to where we were talking to the people who lived in the neighborhood. We also mm-hmm. did it in rural environments at, you know, Winn-Dixie. So then, it became, and then people were like, when's the next one? When's the next one? So, and of course they were talking about the elephant in the room, J and J. So we're like, oh my gosh, how are we going to keep, because you, if you're in the neighborhood in Moncrief, which is a, you know, a zip code, an underserved zip code, say in Jacksonville, those same people aren't going to go back to that place. They may not, they may have been passing through. I'm hoping that we'll have some good news within the, in the week about J and J so that we can get back to getting people that are ready for one shot and done. And I think you wanted to add something, Coletta. Well, that was our outreach strategy was, you know, we we started with Moderna vaccine and then going back to, you know, um, for the second doses. But when Johnson & Johnson or Janssen became available, that was our community outreach strategy, just your, your one and done. Well, now we've gone back to you know, Moderna. But what we have um, been able to to work out with our 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 ministry is we have a large vaccination center at Pennington Biomedical Research Center. We collaborated with them because they have a huge complex and a huge, huge meeting room. So that is where a large um, vaccine clinic that we we run is there and that can do 1700 vaccines a day, 1700 vaccines a day. Um, and then we have in the northern part of our parish, which is a very disinvested area, um, one of our, our clinics, we in the community center there, we can do 500 vaccines a day. So what we've done, say, like on May 1st, we'll be doing a job fair and a vaccine clinic with high school students. And we're partnering with Links, the Links Ladies Sorority. We have two chapters in Baton Rouge, and so we're gonna do we're gonna do Pfizer at that clinic. And when the kids get ready to check out, we'll ask them where would you like your second vaccine? You can go to Pennington, you can go to North, you can go to Ascension. Well, I don't drive, not a problem. Our mayor has worked out an Uber contract. And here's your code. It will bring you to your clinic and it will bring you home. And so we, you know, we, we've been able to address the, the transportation issue, too. So, you know, that's our that's our strategy of how do we deal with this now? And I think it's a blessing because we were going to really struggle with you're not 18. Well, I'm 18 next week. Well, you ain't 18 today. So you can't exactly. get shot. So uh, being able to use Pfizer now um, will afford us that opportunity to really work with the seniors and then not have to go back another Saturday just for a shot. They can do it when it, you know, wherever within their time frame in one of those three clinics. And I'm glad you brought that up, you know, about clinics and then in different neighborhoods. The pandemic has really 
one of our medical doctors like to say, expose what, you know, Corona's exposed what about health policy and health access that nothing else could have done. You know, even in, in Florida, the, the governor has, you know, allowed for a lot of buildings that are in underserved communities to become vaccination centers. Mm-hmm. You know, how do we connect now once our vaccinations are up to addressing the health inequities in these communities? Is this an opportunity to maybe that is a place for a clinic that we should look at or we're doing job you know, fairs at the same time? How do we represent this culture shift into into you know, addressing those issues. You know, what if access were the only issue in addressing health equity, um, we just we we in Louisiana would have solved that in 2016 when we expanded Medicaid. You know, we look at Baton Rouge and we've watched ourselves through the through the years with the Robert Wood Johnson. You know, the um, what's it called? County health rankings. You know, and and roadmap historically, our parish comes in number one out of 64 parishes, number one for healthcare, because we have, you know, resident training programs here in Baton Rouge, we have access to physicians. So we're number one in healthcare, but we're not number one in outcomes at all. So it's, it's, it, access is important, but once you take access off the table, it leaves us with the hard work of addressing the true determinants of health. You know, the real issues of economics, education, transportation, transportation. housing, you know, the real stuff that makes up the 70, 80%, whichever one of those research papers you read of how you you define how healthy you are. That is like you preaching. You're preaching to the choir there because people always like health, you know, social social determinants of health are not always about health care. So, you know, I know that this is Dr. Hartwell's like baby. So what what would you like to add about that? Because she she just brought the fire right there. That, That Coletta, that was just on point. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's hard to follow behind that. You know, I mean, I I agree that, you know, all COVID did was just unmask all of the inequities that have led to where we are as a nation with all the health and healthcare disparities that currently exist. You know, things like food deserts and digital divide. And, you know, I I agree, Colette, it's, it's, it's not always just about access, you know, and it's not when sometimes when people think of access, they literally think brick and mortar, you know, like there's no building that I can go to, 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 to see a healthcare professional. Well, I mean, here in Cleveland, you know, there's one on every street corner, you know, it's, it's not brick and mortar. It's the systemic behind the scene yes. racism and, and inequities that exist that I think has us where we are. And, you know, like Coletta so eloquently said, and you know, like you've said, so, so it's, it's just, you know, COVID has just unmasked these things, you know, it's, it, it just unmasked it. And, and it's, the question is, what are we going to do moving forward? And that's where, you know, I think you gotta, you know, kind of put your, put, put your money where your mouth is. Right. And hopefully, like I said, I, I was very impressed and proud of our governor who like right out the, right out the bat, you know, formed this you know minority you know um, health task force 
to uh, to address right. um, mm-hmm. these inequities as as they started to sort of rise to the top. Right. It's like when what is it when you're making uh, butter and, and the cream rise to the top, you know, or the butter was always there, you know, and, and, and so was the cream, you know, it was just all mixed in together. Yep. Now that it's rising to the top. So, I, love, I love how you said that because making butter is a lot of work and it's a lot of churning. It's you a lot that of churning. Milk, that's but, right. But, but this is what the pandemic has shown. It's a lot of churning that's gone into lack of lack of, you know, just education, transportation. How do you decide that? One of the things we did when we with COVID is we're working with our persona development people to pull in social determinants of health. It's not about just, oh, the clinic's right there. Well, how do I get there? I have right. children. How am I going to take care of those? So as we start to build the people that we think are members, how do we better help them? How do we meet them where they are? And I think this podcast has really talked about collaboration. Hey, it could be some faith. It's an emotional thing. How do we pull together all of those components and social de- and address social determinants of health to to get people to get vaccine, to maybe get them to get a booster later, but then to also address some of the, the issues that have been there that we need to tackle a neighborhood that, oh, we put a clinic there to give vaccines. Well, what else can we do? Can we have a job fair there? Can we employ some people in the neighborhood? Because it's about that too. And then of course we can get into pay equity. There's a whole bunch of things that we can do but then maybe we need to look at zoning. Why is that neighborhood the way that it is? Of course, I would recommend everybody to read The Color of Law in this relation because a lot of that stuff impacted with COVID. So it's been such a pleasure to talk to each of you about your community initiatives, your statewide initiatives. I mean, I'm proud that Florida Blue is really decided as an insurer that we're going to meet people where they are the same. And but we didn't decide. We partnered with Agape, you know, our federal qualified health centers to actually go where people are. So they trust those people and those organizations. And we just needed to to trust them and to let them help us do the work too. So I'm just proud to talk to each of you and to hear your stories about overcoming health disparities from getting the vaccine. And then, you know, in the future, maybe there's some opportunities there. So Coletta, call to action. What can we do in this arena to eliminate some healthcare disparities, to help with vaccine distribution, well, you know, d- structure drives outcome. And so the question then becomes, you know, how are we building into our systems, our processes and our structures to get the outcome that we need? In other words, so my challenge to healthcare is, um, especially your hospitals within all of your, your systems and networks, where are your community health needs assessments? 2021 is a community health needs assessment year or 2022, depending upon when you first started. Where does health equity sit on your community health needs assessment? Because then it'll be driven to your implementation plans, which each year you have to do an implementation plan. So how do you then, you know, uh, work with your hospital systems? Because what I what I see is that hospitals automatically want to go to when you talk about health equity. Well, we have a diabetes clinic (laughs) or we have this structure here. We have that there. So helping them understand the true dynamics behind or underpinning social determinants of health about equity, you know, local and inclusive hiring. How do we go into 
um, disinvested community zip codes, lift up people out of poverty and give them meaningful work with benefits, you know, that you can afford to raise a family. How do you support local and inclusive companies, you know, uh, purchasing power? Are we purchasing from local women, minority, veteran-owned, disinvested uh, businesses? You know, are we making the investments that Cleveland has made into, you know, housing and infrastructure? And so, you know, hospitals and systems have foundations where there are, are, you know, investment portfolios. Well, instead of getting a three-year return on that investment, maybe it's 10 or 20 years. But guess what? I've made a social impact and still got a return on my investment. If we're going to be a true anchor institution in our communities, how might we do that work? To me, that's the call to action. And it's to get out of that mental model of a medical mental model and look at how are we truly a community partner. I love it. Dr. Harwell, your call to action. How do we address this? How do we move forward? seeing how I'm in the community and I feel like I'm sort of in the trenches here and can really see and hear and be that voice of what patients are saying they need and they want to see. Mm -hmm. For me, the biggest call to action is to really acknowledge and involve the community. You know, We oftentimes, you know, you can run numbers and you can run stats and figures and say, if you live in this zip code, here's your life expectancy. And you, oh, look where you live. And then, oh, you're in a food desert. And, and, oh, look, look at internet service. You know, look how often it's down in this area. You can do all of that. You can do all of that. But ask the community, what are their priorities? Is their priority to, I don't know, get a grocery store that has fresher fruits and and better options because they live in a food desert? Or is their priority to move the bus stop from five blocks down the street from where they have to get off, then have to walk in an unlit, not so well neighborhood to get home after getting off work? So, yeah, so we can say, here, let, let me help try to find you a job. Let me help, you know, build your skill sets. Let's do this. Let's do that. Then they get a job, but they're on the bus line. But they're afraid when they get off at midnight to walk home from the bus stop because the way some of the bus stops are strategically located in some communities is not safe. So the point I'm trying to make is I think that we can never forget that the care that we're given to people as a nation should be patient-centered. The patient is at the center of all of this, all of this chaos, all of this inequity, all of these social determinants of health, all of these inequalities and disparities. Who is sitting at the core is the patient. So that's the voice that we really have to make sure that we include and that they feel that they're stakeholders in how we're going to get ourselves out of this mess that we've been in. But like we've already said, COVID has just unmasked. But let's make sure that there are community voices to help solve these problems. I'm going to agree with you 100% as we close this out because it is community 
it is community, and it is patient-centered, but it is community. And I think talking to you two ladies today has totally, look, I'm going to walk away, look at my community. So I completely understand that call to action. You have to go into a community and ask them what they need. You know, and and I'll end it on Florida Blue has done that with some purpose built communities. We are working with Lyft Jacks here. We've got Lyft Orlando. We even got a community um, near Overtown in Miami that we are in the community. We're not just what do you need? Okay, you don't want a clinic. You want a better sidewalk. We've done it with the city of Hialeah. We needed sidewalks so people can walk safely. Mm -hmm. So I completely understand that. So thank you. And thank you for all of our listeners for joining us today. It has been my pleasure to host for the very first time, and I look forward to returning soon. So remember to keep in touch with the podcast by subscribing on Apple, Google, Spotify, or yes, even Stitcher. And you can also sign up to get notifications by email on our website. And if Twitter is your thing, because it's mine, you can find Movement is Life over there via at M-I-L caucus that's c-a-u-c-u-s follow us and get into some great conversations so goodbye for now be well and thank you for working towards health equity